Hello, Mr. Oliver. Hey, what's going on, Jason? Man, just ready for the weekend. What about you? <laughs> I'm ready for uh, next week. I'm going on vacation finally. So, what day you leave? Uh, Thursday. So, I'll be out for two weeks, do a big long road trip. So, this will be your last podcast for a few weeks. Yep. Yeah. Do you have anybody you're going to hop on for uh, a guest host? I have a couple of people I'm going to reach out to, and I guess um, now talking to you today, I should probably do that sooner than later, but <laughs> yeah, hopefully a couple of people will will join me, but are you excited about vacation? Yeah, I haven't ever really done too much vacation-wise for a long time, so it's going to be nice. Um, just so, you know, you need that time to stop and think about life for a little bit, you know, and what you're working on is always kind of front of mind. So I like having, you know, a week or two away. Like we did that one weekend in, uh, what was it? Nashville. Nashville. And, and that was fun. Just thinking about what you're doing with your life and all that. I, I don't know. I don't take enough time out of my regular week to think about those things. So I find, you know, taking that once a year, at least at the very least it ends up being useful. So. Awesome. Uh, did you take the 4th of July off? Uh, no, not really. I think I ended up working that day, but that's kind of what happens when you run your own stuff and just kind of work whenever, but you don't have to work, you know, eight hours a day. You can work six hours a day, every day of the week or whatever, you know, so it can kind of be, you know, flexible. So sure. <clears throat> yeah. Cool. How about it, you? Uh, well, yeah, I took the fourth off. Um, we just hung out, went to some friend's house. They did like an all day, like barbecue and just celebrated America. Yeah. There the was uh part. did you see that video of the person flying into LAX that had like recorded all the fireworks around the city who were just no. clearly like super like but basically like people are doing super dangerous stuff or shooting off big fireworks like everywhere in LA. Like doesn't matter how populated it was, still shooting stuff off. Like my neighbors actually in the street behind me we're shooting off some pretty large fireworks. <laughs> There's a few times I was like, when's my house going to catch fire? <laughs> yeah. I kept hoping it would rain. <laughs> fireworks, fireworks don't typically bother me, but when you get your 18 month old down, you're like, please just shut up. Like, <laughs> I don't want to yeah. wake him up. Yeah. Fair enough. I always like the people that fly their drones through the fireworks. Oh, Lord. Some really cool videos out of that. Yeah, I'd be scared that my drone would explode. <laughs> yeah, but you can always buy a new one, right? I mean, what if, is funny? If you get a cool enough shot in your drone, then you just put it on YouTube and you make ad revenue. You get a new drone, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like too much work when you could just keep your existing drone. <laughs> Oh, any new uh, Ruby stuff with you this week? Been digging into a lot of performance stuff, uh, mostly okay. for work. So that's been fun. Uh, I bought a book or a whole course like two years ago, <laughs> uh, The Complete Guide to Rails Performance. 
And is this the first time you're going to take a look at the course? Yeah, I've skimmed through it before. Um, but now, like, I have an actual, like, project that, like, I can measure and, you know. Right. Make, make changes and actually, like, compare the results. So uh, I really. What, are you using any tools for it, like Skylight or, you know, New yeah. Relic and so on? We're using Scout. Scout, okay. And so we're like measuring our response times, average response times. <laughs> then it'll actually give us traces into certain requests, things like that. So, so are you seeing stuff that's like slow queries, slow views, you know, big memory consumption? You know, have you found any specific things that you want to go after? Yeah, we're we're experimenting with caching right now. So specifically okay. Russian doll caching um, that was recommended by our CTO. And so I've been reading about that. I've only done basic caching before. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, just starting small with some like small experiments. So I've mo I actually haven't done any actual Russian doll caching so far. I've mostly just been doing fragment caching. So just taking like, you know, snippet of a view, right. caching that. And for anybody who doesn't know, Russian doll caching is. Oh, I, th I thought you were, I was waiting for you to explain to it. Uh, <laughs> I figured you could because you're, you know, yeah, neck deep in it. I'm into it right now. So essentially you have, um, let's, let's say you have a view and it's got different parts of the page. So let's, let's go with like a to-do list. So maybe you have, um, a view that renders the to-do list. And then maybe let's say that's an, I'm, I'm going like real basic here. Let's say that's like an unordered list. And for every to-do you have a list item. So essentially with Russian doll caching, you can, we'll, we'll start from the inside out. You could cache each one of those to-do list items. And then um, you can cache the container for all that. So we'd say like our unordered list, and then we could even go as far as to cache the page wrapping that. And so then basically when one to do item changes, it only breaks itself, but it breaks the container and the page, but none of the other individual ones. Right. And so, and rails has a way to handle that. So like if I just changed, one item, it wouldn't necessarily break the parent. Um, it should, because, right? Because then the it, parent would be stale. The parent would be stale, but the way Rails does is it, the way Rails does it is that. So I would say, like, let, let's say a list item belongs to, or uh, a list. That I guess that makes sense. So uh, if I updated a list item the updated at column on a list item would change, but the list itself wouldn't have been updated. Mm -hmm. So the way you handle that is it's like a list item belongs to a list. And then you would just add um, belongs to mm -hmm. list touch true. So when that updated at on the list item changes, the list updated at reflects that. And so then it breaks the cache for that, but it can still reuse the cache cache for the other list items because each one of those are haven't changed. So it's really yeah. fascinating and it's it's really 
it's really smart. Like <laughs> it's so it's this well is thought a, out. This reminded me of um some somewhere DHH mentioned for Russian doll caching. And, and you know, like how many people have you heard say that N plus one is like the worst thing in the world and you have to always fix N plus one every single time? Like everybody says that, right? But the thing with Russian doll caching is you've now queried the database for all of these records that you may not even use. Um, so if the one changed, you would actually need to just render the single one that changed and uh, you know the list itself. And he mentioned that somewhere where it's like N plus one is not really that big of a deal. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, so the... The video he talks about that on is actually an interview for this course. Um, okay. It's with cool. Nate. I, I oh. can never pronounce his last name right. But Berkebeck or whatever. Yeah. Sorry, Nate. Yeah. Nate was like one of the first people <laughs> I ever met at a RailsConf. He's been so nice to me. I can't even pronounce his last name. Um, <laughs> his website's what? Rails Speed or something? Yeah, it's like speedshop.co yeah. or something like that. But yeah. Speed like shop. Nate's super, super well-informed when it comes to performance. So anyway, so in that video, DHH actually says in terms of like Russian doll caching, M plus one is a feature. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that was the thing. I was like, oh, wow. Um, I, I would still argue that M plus one without caching is bad. Um, sure. That, I mean, that's definitely slower. Like, um, yeah, in, in this term. Much, you pretty much can only get an advantage with N plus one when you have caching because then you can just query for the one record you need instead of a hundred records of to-do items or something. So that does get beneficial, but you also have to have a warm cache where a lot of people in, you know, if you do a migration or something in production to a new caching server like memcached or something, or you just have a big app that requires the cache to be warm, then yeah, it's one of those cases where like you definitely will have a slower boot up at the beginning because you have to like populate all the cache with all this stuff, and then your app will finally run like normal. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's been fun. Um, there's ways to, I guess, set different keys. So like the default key is like a records ID and it's updated at timestamp, but there's like certain cases where I want something to kind of be like scoped, I guess is the way I want to say it. So like given a current user, I want this record like scoped to that. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a good example off the top of my head, but there's ways to like set that key. Like you just open an array and say like, what's this other value um, that I want to use as a key along with this other one. And it's just, it's kind of like when you do a form, you give it an array or like a, a form for, and you give it an array of the location, it like magically makes that work. It's kind of the same thing. So. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you, you need to scope it to a user or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, or, yeah. Like the current user or whatever. So still, still don't know what the heck I'm doing, but learning <laughs> and, uh, I think one of the hard parts of it is like Rails calculates all the cache keys for you so easily and obviously that, and you're never going to see them that 
probably doing something like that where if you print it out and you could see the cash keys it would start to make a little bit more sense but that's one of the things with rails it's just like well as long as it works you don't need to see it or worry about it or think about it that's kind of one of the hard parts about learning that stuff is like okay well why do we have to do the touch is true on the parent it's like well because then it changes the timestamp from because it includes the update of that in the cache key and uh like you don't know that otherwise because you've never seen the cache key so yeah it's like okay i add this option and it works i don't understand <laughs> yeah it's just this week has reminded me that because uh, there's a lot of times like the more you work with rails like you kind of push certain boundaries and i don't know sometimes like i get kind of frustrated with rails but this was one of those weeks that reminded me like man this is awesome like this is a feature we need to implement and rails really did like just make this easy for me to implement mm -hmm. so. well it's basically you get to skip all of the gotchas that are along the way because they've done it before you have and they've made it easy for you and that's like the beauty of using something like rails and I find pretty much everybody's frustration with Rails ends up coming from that, where it's like, yeah, well, you're trying to do something that you've never done before and you don't understand any of the ins and outs, then yes, it gets frustrating because there's a lot to learn, but there's no instructions on it because they can kind of skip documenting any of those things because you don't need to know it to use that feature. But um, conceptually, you do need to kind of understand it to like build some of this stuff. And that's, I feel like, most people's um, frustration with Rails and why a lot of people just give up and move to something else. They they find it easier to go reinvent the wheel in a sense um, because then they can understand, you know, what their code's actually doing. And they're, that's the magic of Rails, I guess, that people love and hate. Yeah, DHH talked about that as Rails code, Rails note, key, Rails conf keynote. Um he called, I think the term he used was conceptual compression. And like the example he gave was like, when you start with Rails as a beginner, you don't, you only have to know enough SQL. Like it's active record, like compresses that so you can just mm -hmm. get started. And that's how I felt this week with caching is like, I've done really basic caching mm -hmm. before on one project. Um, but like, I don't know, just not having to, like you said, like go through all the gotchas. It's just nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. That's, there's so many of those things, like um, even just using active record, you know, with your associations, they will set up the correct joins for you and you don't have to really worry about, is it left outer join or inner join or whatever. A lot of times you can just say, boom, here's my associations. I want these things and it'll give them right back to you. And then, because those end up being logged, you can kind of learn how it works because um, you can see it in the Rails logs. But, well, I guess you do get to see the cache keys and the Rails logs from caching. So that could be a place to reverse engineer it and learn a bit about what it's doing under the hood. And then, of course, all this code is in, it's all open source. It's in the repo for Rails. And so a lot of times I'll just dive in there and be like, how does this cache method work? And then just poke around and it's really not that hard to, I mean, 
if you get into active record, it can be pretty hard to follow what the heck's going on. But um, for a lot of stuff, you can at least get a high level pretty quickly. Just diving in. Yeah. In the there's an article DHH wrote, I guess either after or sometime after his keynote, and it was about that um, that term, the conceptual compression, and I think that's the right term. But essentially, talks about how you get started, and then you can go back and learn all the ins and outs of it, and like really learn about it, and then just go back to using the abstraction of it so yeah right anything else uh fun you did this week that's been most of my week i read in ruby weekly yesterday an article that i thought was really well written um it was about single page apps in rails did you read that one yeah the escaping the single page app rabbit hole yeah i was it was i tend to avoid articles like that but i read that one and i i don't know i really could really empathize with a lot of that because i'm i really enjoy not necessarily single page apps but kind of i guess air quotes more modern javascript but the points he raised in that article were really good essentially let me pull it up yeah um I don't remember exactly what he mentioned in there, but I know this same feeling has been plaguing me a little bit lately with um, with working on Hatchbox. One of the funny things is that Rails and stuff is so fast that what happens is you'll click like deploy on an app, which will submit a request to the server and then TurboLinks redirects you. But the action cable stuff is still running. And so the status of your app or whatever gets updated from action cable and that will come off or come to your browser faster than the deploy will be able to re-render the page. And so then um, there's this like little annoying thing because I'm using action cable and it's running so fast uh, to send this update that it will update the page and then the page replaces it with the old like cache version. And so you don't see that it's marked as deploying. Now it looks like it was just stuck in some old state and uh, it's actually running, but it's not visually appears that way. And it's, you know, one of those things where I'm like, well, you know, there's only a handful of solutions for this. Like I can slow my stuff down and just like put a delay on everything. When you click a button, wait three or five seconds. So the like response for sure should have rendered or, you know, I guess I could go build up something like, um, I don't know, go build out more client side JavaScript and, and have that in a store somewhere and then change those from being rendered by rails to being rendered by Vue.js as little components all over. And I was just like, you know, like one by one, these things end up getting more and more complicated. And I really like, don't, need it to be that complicated you know i do want to show you your status of your app in real time but i don't really want to go down this rabbit hole of rewriting everything in javascript um, for like a very small benefit but at some point i'm gonna have to probably do that because it needs to be you know updated immediately but the easier hack is just to put a 
two or three second delay on running those jobs or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, I like that article rang really true. And I was like, man, like this, this, like all my sidekick jobs run so quickly that I get like a little bit frustrated with, um, you know, trying to do this. So I'm going to try and figure out what the simplest version of that is that I can implement because there's so many other features that I need to work on. Not that, that, that aren't like this, you know, interactive thing on the browser side that um, it just feels like the more I try and fiddle with front end JavaScript, the more I kind of get like sucked into that wasted time rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. And I, I totally think that it has its place. Um, but I'm trying to pull it up. There was one thing in here. Okay. So there's a section on like code duplication and it talks about how you have all this logic around your like business domain server side, but then you have to kind of replicate that again, client side. And I was like, that yep that's the thing that has happened to me yeah especially you know client side validations is a perfect example of that that's something you end up doing in your models and in your browser and blah 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 and it just ends up being really painful to uh to do all that twice and then it just gets you know more and more complicated as you go <clears throat> yeah it's a really good article i'll link to it um and it talks about like turbo links and some stimulus stuff, and even just the, uh, what's it called? The JavaScript responses, I guess that's server rendered or server generated JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here it is. And like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a really good article. Um, so we'll link to that. But other than that, I don't have much that there's also a really good article on service objects that was in Ruby Weekly. Um, just some like, not necessarily rules, but like one developer kind of guidelines for it. And there were a couple I was like, eh, but for the most part, it's really good. So I'll link to that as well. But I don't have necessarily a ton to say on that. I have a ton to say on service objects, but today's <laughs> not the day for that. <laughs> we'll have to touch on that at some point then. That's yeah. like, like a very good topic. Yeah, I have I have a lot of thoughts around that. Um, and I've been spending the last few weeks kind of in my spare time forming, I guess, my own kind of guidelines and thoughts around it. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe when you get back, we can sit down and chat about it. Yeah, we can have a whole hour long of just <laughs> complaining about service objects. <laughs> yeah, and everybody will just be so bored for an hour but <laughs> I, have, I have many a thought but or, what's or going on with you um well let's see this week i did um i had you know it's fun building something where like hatchbox is so complicated that to build a feature that seems easy ends up like getting you into the internals of how some of the tools you use work i like that it's not super productive, but it is really fun to understand more about the stuff, the libraries and things you're using. So like an example of that is, um, I had somebody asked about, you know, using jump servers 
um, with Hatchbox. So basically you have one server that you set up and harden and then all your other servers are behind that one. Um, and so when you want to log in to one of your web servers, you go through this jump server and proxy through it to one of your other servers. So I was trying to build that into Hatchbox to add that. And there's like, I'm using NetSSH um, just built in and everything. And so it was like, well, they have functionality for that. So it should be as simple as just like instantiating this class and passing in this option as it says in the readme. And then like quickly you run into this giant rabbit hole of, oh, guess what? You can't log into that jump server. Um, and we're not going to tell you why. And so we ended up, um, I was like hanging out with one of my friends and we started to dive into what was wrong with it. And basically the net SSH stuff is written in such a way that if you want to go to one of these jump servers, it doesn't allow you to use any of the authentication options you set for that final server you're trying to get to. And I wanted them to be the same. And so, um, yeah, there's the, basically like we tried to look at the code and see how we could set it up, but it has to create this connection before it can do the authorization and other stuff. And so we came to the conclusion that we would have to completely duplicate the authentication stuff in that SSH to add it to this like proxy server thing. And uh, we were just like, man, that sucks. You know, like we spent, we spent a few hours learning how NetSSH worked to create connections and all of that. And so now I feel like, man, I could just hop in here and, you know, if there's anything that I find is a bug in the SSH library, I could probably go in and fix it at this point, which is really fun. I like, you know, I like when I'm learning something like that, which I, you know, I'm building this thing on top of these building blocks. And the more that I can learn about those building blocks, the better. Cause then if anything ever goes wrong, I'm not at their will, like the original authors will, then I can go fork it and fix it and use my own version. And I really like that cause it gives me a lot of confidence going forward that I can build literally anything I want. And I also don't have to do it all from scratch and learn all of those weird edge cases like we talked about earlier. If I was going to build my own SSH library, I'd probably be doing that for months as I figured out, you know, all these weird little things and the different keys, encryption types and all that stuff. And so um, I had a lot of fun doing that, but then my conclusion was like, okay, I'm not going to fix the gem to add or allow the authentication like this. I'm just going to create my, um, my, you know, sort of hack around it, but basically it was, you know, what everybody else was doing was, you know, you set up a little bit, you write your own config file and then use that just like you normally would with SSH on your machine if you wanted to specify different keys to go to different servers. So that was kind of fun. Um, and what else? I did uh, been experimenting with something new. I, I enjoy refactoring a lot. And I know you and I have talked about refactoring as one of the most, you know, sort of fun things to do programming wise. And so I had, uh, um, I'm considering doing some code reviews for people like, you know, for 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever, just 
I'll take a look at your code base. I'll work through it, help you set up tests if you don't have them. You know, we'll refactor some things and figure out how we can clean up stuff. Removing conditionals is always one of my favorite things when refactoring. So I did one of those this week and just had a blast. And it was really, you know, really enjoyable to go through all that and just kind of like see a code base that you don't understand and you don't really understand, like you kind of get the intentions of this code, but that's part of the thing or part of the fun is like, what are they trying to accomplish? Cause I don't understand it. And so then you can work your way back into like, if we just name these variables better, I can start to understand this at a glance now. And so if you, for, if you forget about this and come back two years later, voila, you can understand it immediately. And that kind of stuff was just fun to do this week. Yeah. I feel like in that context, a fresh set of eyes is a really good indication of like what needs to be refactored. Yeah, it really is. As someone who doesn't, who comes to the project knowing nothing about it, the, um, the measure of how long it takes you to grasp what's going on can kind of help guide your recommendations too. So that's cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's what I look for in pretty much all this code is, number one, how long does it take me to understand it? And if it takes too long, it definitely needs to be you know reconsidered. And then just going through and trying to figure out how many if statements we can remove ends up being like fantastic. Some, some of it's really hard to do that, but some of it's a lot easier um, than you might think too. There's just a lot of just having another person's perspective in there too can help a lot. Yeah. If you're writing tests, you need to be charging way more than $1,000. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I was trying to figure out where it would make sense to do that. Um, Cause you know, basically like what I wanted to do was record a screencast for them so that they could see how I would approach things, not necessarily how I would not actually do the work. Um, So I'd give you an example or two in most cases and say, okay, now apply this to the rest of your app. So one of the, one of the small things that I saw in this code base was, you know, in, in models using self dot and the attribute name, not when it was an assignment. And so then, you know, there's just a lot of extra stuff in the code. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'll do this here in this method, but if we delete these everywhere, your models can end up being read so much easier. And also if we, you know, you have a bunch of ors together, how about we just make a method that's like, is this complete? Cause you were checking for multiple steps to be complete, like in a wizard or something. Um, so adding shortcuts like that made stuff more readable and so on. And, and, but it was like, I'll give you a couple examples and then you should understand the concept and be able to kind of take it from there. Um, and then, yeah, cause I, at, a, at a point, if you start writing the test and doing it too much, then it's like, well, you might as well just be consulting for them. <laughs> right. So no, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's kind of fun. So um, I don't know if anybody's interested. Uh, I'm potentially going to do a few more of those soon. So you can email me, chris at gorails.com if you're interested. But I thought it was uh, fun and a way to, like, you know, 
in a few hours of my time, give you a whole lot of notes that you could apply specific to your stuff. Whereas, you know, most of my screencasts are very generic and they can be a lot harder to translate to your own actual code. And then having somebody to look at your code base and tell you what to do is feels like eye opening, I'm sure. So um, just kind of experimenting with that. I think it could be fun. Cool. Well, um, did you see that uh, uh, DHH is actually, this seems weird to me, but he's actually the one kind of promoting Webpacker to uh, replace the asset pipeline, at least for JavaScript, not not images and CSS, but. Yeah, I did see that. You think it's their, their work on stimulus that they're like, man, if we just had ES6, it would be so much easier. It could be. <laughs> That's totally possible. Though, last I checked, it's been a while. I know they they haven't totally abandoned CoffeeScript yet. Oh, really? Maybe that's, that's changed, but... Well, I know none of the stimulus stuff I've seen has CoffeeScript, at least. But I'm sure that they use a lot of CoffeeScript internally and haven't mi migrated all that over yet. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited about Rails 6 um using webpack but i wish it was handling all the assets i kind of thought the same thing um it seems kind of kind of weird to just do part of it but at the same time like webpack's main functionality is i mean although like i'll say using tailwind a lot like for styles and stuff it's still super valuable it probably doesn't super give a whole lot of benefit for like the images and stuff, but if it can compile them, at least, you know, put the MD5 in the file name and, and create a manifest or whatever, just like asset pipeline does, you know, it just seems like it might as well go the whole distance if they're going to do it. Um, who knows? That might change. I was reading through some pull requests and or issues. I can't remember what it was this morning. And one of the issues brought up, I think it's actually, it's a link from the Webpack Rail 6 pull request. Um, is that, so you know, I think it's SAS Ruby is being deprecated. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which yeah. is the core one, right? Right. It's like LibSass was the C version that wasn't like fully complete or something. I can't remember. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but there's an interesting discussion that came up about um, should, you know, like DHH hasn't been involved in this discussion, but like should in lieu of this, wouldn't it be nice if just we just moved everything to Webpack? It wasn't a Rails core team member who said that, but is interesting thought. So I don't know. I, I mean, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, I would bet that this will happen at some point. If if we're making Webpack the default, um, it just seems inevitable that at some point, or like, you know, somebody's going to build a gem or it may already support it like just fine right now to just use Webpacker for everything. Right. So, so we'll see. Um, 
It seems likely. Uh, also, I remember the Ruby SAS thing. It's getting replaced by like a Dart library or something. Yeah, that's what they talked about. Essentially, it's like Dart and it compiles to JavaScript. Hmm. I don't really know anything at all about Dart. Um, I don't. Yeah, that's not been in my wheelhouse, nor has been it. It's not even been a name that I've thought of for a while either. Like I typically think about, you know, Elixir and Crystal and Go and all these other languages, but like Dart hasn't crossed my path in a while. So. Yeah, I, I don't even remember the, the reason it crossed my path last time. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't either. So that's kind of funny, but it's interesting to see that it's clearly if it's taking over the SAS Ruby um, place, then, you know, Dart must be getting a lot more attention. So it might have to be something I'll take a look into, but I'm really interested to dive into more crystal and Amber framework stuff soon. My buddy um, here in town, he's been, uh, he's been fiddling with, and I think the crystal Langs HTTP server, like the official um, library for crystal didn't support Unix sockets until like crystal 0.25 or something. So um, he was actually switching up, trying to switch up Amber to allow for Unix sockets, which should be a little bit faster than just talking over ports or whatever, um, which would be interesting to see if he gets that merged in. Um, it's just been cool to have some crystal action going on nearby so i'm like uh, i kind of want to play with that and the speed of it with the for the most part the flexibility of ruby is awesome but i think um i think they've improved uh stuff a bit more with the um the views because the problem with views in amber's framework is they have to be compiled because like ruby can eval all of your Ruby code inside your HTML ERB files. Crystal can't do that because it's a compiled language. And so that's the that was the thing that was like, oh, I save a view and I refresh in my browser right away and it's not there, it's not there. And then the server goes down and then the server comes back up and it's finally there like after 20 or 30 seconds. And I was like, I don't know, that's not like not near fast enough for me to iterate and and work on my views and stuff so i was like oh, i'll just stick with ruby for now and um the faster that ends up getting the more tempting amber is going to be if i can keep writing code in the similar format as ruby i think that'll be cool i also saw that uh vue.js 3.0 is going to be entirely written in typescript internally so you won't have to use typescript and pass in or you know set types in your code um but internally it will enforce types which is i think for any framework is phenomenal because if you have you know view helpers or whatever in rails if all of those things were able to enforce types of some sort and give you more helpful errors other than you called first name on nil class you know, that sort of thing ends up being impossible for people to understand as beginners and just annoying for us, you know, who've been doing this for a while. Um, being able to write your libraries and say, like, we need a user class or something that implements this, then uh, 
the errors and stuff end up being way more helpful. And I think a lot of people use or prefer typed languages for that reason. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We also, we have Stripe trying to give us. Hey, yeah. Sorbet or whatever. Yeah. yeah I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. It's like sorbet.run is the domain for it. I think um, that looks pretty cool. I don't know that they've open sourced any code or anything, but it's just like a website right now. Yeah, um, they are, from what I read, they're going to. They're still using it a little bit internally right now. I guess trying to work out the kinks and stuff. But I'm super excited about that. Um, they've talked about their gating for the API as well. So they take your API request, and then um, either if you've included like the API version in your request, or whatever's default on your account or saved to your account. Um, they can enable and translate some of the options you pass in. And that allows them to basically like make their API like constantly compatible with like every version. And I was like, what? Like, this is sweet. Cause if you actually thought about it, like you could have these gates in order based upon like the time it was changed and you could translate these parameters and if you translated it like four or five times it could still work um because you would just translate it from one thing to the other and i was like whoa that's cool so that's yeah i was i have i'll try and find that blog post and put it in the notes um so that people can read that because that was really neat but i don't think they really showed any real code on that it was just kind of pseudo code or conceptual stuff but it was sweet. That's awesome. Well, man, I think I'm going to run unless you got anything else. Oh, uh, no, not really. Um, only other thing was I was just fiddling more with good old React Native lately. So this week's screencast and a couple of next two weeks will be on building uh, an Expo and React Native app to talk to your Rails API. So I thought that was kind of fun. So anybody's interested in that stuff that's on gorails.com then really i don't know it's just fun to build you know a mobile app when you're always working on web apps <laughs> so yeah that's about it i guess uh i won't see you next week probably unless we record before i leave um but yeah well if i don't talk to you then i won't talk to you after vacation Sounds good. And we will, yeah, we'll figure out. If I don't see you then, then I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Cool. Sounds good, man. All right. See you.